word this day. Lord, as we've been singing today, you know our hearts. We thank you that, Lord, as we look back to the last week, some of us have had a little extra time to offer you a song or two of thanks and praise. But Lord, we know that among us today, I'm sure there are those who are here who still are singing the blues. There are those, Lord, who sing a dirge, a song of lament. There are others, Lord, who have a hard time singing, and there's no joy in their song at all. Others of us, Lord, are ready to jump up and down and celebrate and have been singing nonstop since we got up this morning. But Lord, we pray that whatever melody or lack of melody, is in our hearts. We pray that your word would come to us, that would help, Lord, speak to us wherever we are. You pray, Lord, that you might help direct our attention to yourself, for you're the one from whom all wonderful melodies come. Lord, you are our music. And we pray that you'd help us to sing, led by your spirit, as we look into your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I realize that some of us, and this is true of only some of us, are still coming to grips with what has transpired here recently in light of the impact of the Hurricane Sandy. I know a number of us, and I'm speaking personally now, a number of us endured uh, extended times, extended days with no power, no heat, no telephone there for a while, no hot water. Others of us have suffered some damage that have come from probably a fallen tree or fallen branch. Uh, Others of us, perhaps not in this area, but maybe other areas, have suffered uh, serious flooding damage. And as we saw in today's Newsday, there are those in our area who have died uh, as a result of this massive storm and the cleanup attaining to it. All this, of course, has occurred at such a time in which we have a weak economy, in which we know that many people are in need of jobs or are looking for jobs that are better than the ones they have, and many companies are not hiring like they once did. And so I ask the question, is this an appropriate time to have a service of worship dedicated to thanking God? On September the 16th, 1620, a small band of separatists departed from England after... They spent 62 days crossing the Atlantic Ocean. They landed on the icy shores of Massachusetts. And the list of those who were aboard that ship was fairly short. It wasn't that long, really. There were 102 men, women, and children. And four months after they arrived, in April of 1621, of the 102 that came and left the shores of England, only 50 were still alive. Fighting to survive, they hunted, they fished, they planted crops. And the next fall, when they celebrated their survival, they celebrated the faithfulness of God, who they believed had sustained and supplied for them with good things, so that in the fall of 1623, the governor of Plymouth Colony, William Bradford, whose own wife drowned as she disembarked from the ship. So she had made it all the way over, and then she drowns when she's trying to get off the ship uh, upon their arrival. This governor issued a formal proclamation 
for everyone in the small community to gather and render thanksgiving to Almighty God for all of his blessings. In the midst of shortage, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering, their hearts rejoiced in God their Savior. There's another period of time when President Abraham Lincoln occupied the highest office in our land during one of the lowest periods in our nation's history. This country was at war against itself. And on October the 3rd, 1863, two weeks after 34,000 Americans were killed or injured in the Battle of Chickamauga in Georgia, Lincoln composed an eloquent proclamation urging his fellow citizens to, quote, solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledge the gracious gifts of the Most High God. Something that's obviously today's world rather politically incorrect to do. In the midst of strife, turmoil, division, and death, and utter destruction, Lincoln sought to point the American citizenry to the source of their collective blessings. So I come back to the question again, and I'll pose the question this way. When is the best time to thank God? When life is problem-free? When all around you is as it should be? If that was the case, it would rarely, if ever, be the right time to give thanks to God. See, giving thanks to God is not tied to the economy. Giving thanks to God is not tied to the level of peace or tranquility in our nation. Giving thanks to God is not tied to who or who does not occupy the White House or the governor's mansion. The inner desire and the impetus to give thanks to God is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The desire to give thanks to God is propelled by the work of the Holy Spirit in lives of people in whose uh, hearts God is at work. And as we survey the wonders of the gospel, the greater the likelihood of our hearts will overflow in thanksgiving to God in the best times and in the worst times. As we submit to the control of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of his ministry in our hearts will bring forth the outward expression of gratitude to God. So this morning I want us to take just a few examples in the scriptures of how this phenomenon works and explore a couple of essentials to thanksgiving and reflecting upon a couple of passages. The first one I'd like to suggest is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you'll find your way in Pew Bible 1375, 1375, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I want us to think just for moments of the Apostle Paul and his situation he faced in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In this passage, Paul is reviewing the power of the gospel. And he's looking at how the power of the gospel has resulted in an ever-expanding circle of thanksgiving to God among the people of God. We're going to pick it up now if we look at verse 7. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, 
but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you for all, th- for all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Now our first point this morning is just to make a very obvious observation, and that is that thanksgiving is the fruit of of a gospel-saturated mind. A gospel-saturated mind. While Paul was under attack by pseudo-apostles, these false apostles who had invaded the church that he had established, and they were spreading rumors about him, accusing him of being uh, duplicitous, that he was a person who had deceived them, he really was using them for his own benefit, and just undermining his character. In the midst of all this attack against him, Paul defended his ministry and he defends his approach to ministry in 2 Corinthians. The whole book is really on that great theme. And Paul is emphasizing, verse 2, which I did not read, he's emphasizing the fact that I did not come and adulterate. I did not reformulate the message of the gospel to you folks, even though I've been accused of doing that. And some people apparently are doing that, these false teachers. He said he was committed to living a life of integrity. He was committed to living a life of true servanthood before the church there in Corinth, verse 5. Paul says, you look at the way we've lived, it doesn't match up to what they're saying about us. It was clear to everyone who knew Paul that he was not in ministry to better himself, if they really thought about it, to think that somehow he's there to take advantage of them so that he could advance himself. Paul says, if you really look at what we've been doing, that cannot be true. And then Paul just reminds him, he says, look at the ministry that we've been involved in, the ministry of the gospel to you Corinthians. It resulted in verse 8, all sorts of persecution, all sorts of affliction, all sorts of troubles that we've received as a result of our investment of ourselves in the gospel in your lives. He said the difficulties he encountered due to his devotion to the gospel ministry came in every size and every shape. The persecution he had thus far endured had not been pleasant, but the opposition he faced had not destroyed him. What kept Paul going? That's the question I think is so compelling in this text. If he's saying it's that difficult, it's been that agonizing, it's been that much affliction he's undergone, what kept him going? Because his ministry seemed only to multiply his troubles. Why did he just quit? Look at verse 7. Look at Paul's perspective. He emphatically insisted that the sufferings that he was enduring, which according to verse 10 is endless sufferings, the sufferings he endured in the ministry of the gospel had only served to magnify the surpassing greatness of God's power. 
Paul was confident that God's power, the power to transform a sinner's heart through the same power that was exhibited in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he viewed the situation of his ministry as a, from the point, for the point of view that said, he is not the clever person who can do all these things. He comes in lowliness, in weakness. He only proclaims the truth and he sees what God has done because clearly the power comes from God to change a person's life. And Paul said some people who have underwent similar circumstances to what he would have endured, if you think about it, they would not have reacted the same way. They would not be filled with thanksgiving. He would have been filled with what? The person who does not know the power of God and the working of the power of God in their midst and seeing people's lives change is a person who oftentimes will say, what's the use? They would have probably cursed God, gone to their death, gone to their grave, disillusioned and disheartened, bitter and broken. Perspective is huge in looking at life. Are we expecting our power and our ability to do things? Or are we looking to see the power of God in our midst, admitting our weakness and our brokenness? Look at verse 15. Verse 15 points to an outlook that Paul had developed whereby he viewed his difficulties as part of the greater plan of God, a plan that resulted in greater blessing for those believers there in that city in Corinth. Look what he says, verse 15, All things are for your sakes including the fact of all that he has undergone, all the difficulties and afflictions and troubles and persecutions, it's been done for your sake so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. God is a God of grace. And God works in the midst of afflictions, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of people who found their lives uh, coming to under the, the sense of the conviction work of the Holy Spirit, when, when the God is at work in His grace, we oftentimes find here is a place in which we see that in that suffering, in the hardship, in the difficulties that Paul had endured in the gospel ministry, God is giving grace. The grace of God is at work. And Paul was confident that the same grace at work in him was now spreading and was going wider and wider into more lives. Having suffered from the false accusations, the various forms of persecution which accompanied his gospel spreading ministry there in that part of the world, many people were now joining the worship of God. Many people were now offering their thanks to God because they had received grace through Jesus Christ. And their multiplication of their hearts of thanks is passing on to other people and greater and greater numbers of people are offering thanksgiving to God, even though the, what? there are many forms of difficulty and struggle that still exist. The more people who are thankful to God, Paul says, the more glory God receives. Not the more glory Paul received, because Paul's dealing with greater and greater problems and frustrations and, and difficulties. But he says, as more people come to see the truth of who Jesus Christ is and submit to him and see their lives changed by him and what he did on the cross and through his resurrection, the more there's reason to give glory to God. He's at work in broken people like you and me. Paul saw the sovereign hand of God working all things together for the good of his people. His perspective grew out of a heart of faith. Verse 7, faith in God who displays what? 
surpassing great power through frail, expendable, weak vessels, people like you and me. I wonder if you ever find yourself, if one of the reasons perhaps we are not more thankful than we are, is it because we've lost sight of God's power and God's grace? God's power and grace working in us first, and then seeing God's grace and power working in the lives of other people to the glory of God's great name. I want to look at another example of thankful mindset that is developed despite the fact of maybe perhaps losses and having less things, but even being more thankful. Turn just a couple pages further to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9, page 1379. Look what Paul writes now to the Corinthians. Paul has not been able to get back to them as often as he had wanted to. He's mentioned to them that he would like them to donate money to help some uh, Christians who have uh, sort of been led to Jerusalem. They came to Christ on the day of Pentecost. They've stayed there. They don't really have a good means of income. They're under a lot of persecution. And so uh, he's there collecting some money for them. And listen to what he writes in verse 6, chapter 9, verse 6, 2 Corinthians. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Now he's talking about the idea of letting go of your money and taking the resources that we have and investing those, planting those into the work of God in other people's lives who are in need. He says, let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, which is oftentimes how the false teachers would get people to give to them. They put lots of pressure on people to give. They made you feel tremendously guilty. They were uh, putting the high-pressure sales on you. He says, no, no, God loves people when they give cheerfully. He loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Then Paul quotes from the Old Testament. As he has written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing what? Thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only Sorry, let me back up. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given to this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Very interesting passage here. But he's talking about God's sufficiency, God's adequacy to supply for the believers there in Corinth who are about to invest. They're about to let go of some of their hard-earned money, and they're going to say, we'd like to help other believers and supply some of their needs and using our resources to relieve the poor from the ravages of the famine in Jerusalem. Now, notice that Paul shows how these acts of generous, benevolent giving by the Corinthians 
resulted in, again, increasing the number of people who are offering thanks to God. Paul says in verse 11, you'll be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. And then he ends with the idea that it's overflowing through many thanksgivings of God. As you're invited, as you're invited to participate in this process, do you realize how this is going to draw people into thanking God more and more? Thanking God that you're willing to share. Thanking God that he's at work in your heart and life. Thanking God that you treasure something more than money. Thanking God that he's at work in the, in the idea of seeing love put into action where we do something to help people around us. See, rather than looking at this as an opportunity where they say, well, we're going to just have to suffer loss here. It's actually a, an opportunity for a tremendous opportunity, ever-increasing gain, since more and more of God's people are going to be offering thanks to God. And glorifying God, so that the believers in Jerusalem will be offering thanks and praise to God, glorifying Him. Paul and those who minister with him will be offering thanks to God. And the people in Corinth can offer thanks to God because they've been able to have an opportunity to participate and see that the Holy Spirit's working in their hearts as they change their ways and offer participation with people they don't even know. Though the Corinthians may become poorer as a result of measuring these things by worldly standards, they're actually richer in the kingdom of God. It's actually going to increase the number of people who are thanking God and giving glory to God. Do you see how their perspective, Paul's saying, look broader than just the idea of you giving a monetary gift. See what God is doing. He's drawing people into realizing how great and awesome and wonderful God is as his people obey him and give. Martin Rinkert pastored a church in the early 1600s in the walled city there in Germany. His pastorate began around the same time as the dreaded 30-year war. And throughout the years of those, of the, those war years, there were waves of deadly pestilence and famine swept through his city. And armies marched through town. They left death and destruction and the plague of 1637 ravaged not only their city, but it also ravaged the flock of which he was pastor. And during one of the darkest periods of his life, Pastor Rinkert performed, and this is hard to imagine, he performed up to 40 or 50 funerals in one day. When I was in my church in Virginia, uh, I was there for about five years, and over that period of five years, I think I performed about 100 funerals. And I thought that was a lot. Uh, but that's only about 10 a year. Imagine doing 30 or 40 funerals a day. Under the shadow of danger, disease, destruction, and death, Martin Rinkert composed words of a poem, a joyful hymn of praise. Number 36 in your hymnal. Could you take it just a second and look at that? Number 36 in your hymnal. Now thank we all our God. Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices. Can you read with me? Second line. Who wondrous things has done, in whom his world rejoices, who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way, with countless gifts of love, and still is ours today. Imagine being able to say, God has blessed us with countless gifts of love, 
in the midst, in the context of the kind of losses and sadness and sorrow and death and, and disease that they faced. Verse 2. Oh, may this bounteous God through all our life be near us with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us and keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed and free us from all ills in this world and the next. All praise and thanks to God, the Father now be given, the Son and him who reigns with them in highest heaven, the one eternal God whom earth and heaven adore. For thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. Rinkert, along with the members of his church, learned that you don't just thank God when things are easy, when there is a sense of fullness and fully comfortable in life. But they lifted their hearts to God in thanksgiving and praise in the midst of tragedy and terror. I want to encourage all of us to take a moment and reflect upon your own situation. How did this recent storm, this Hurricane Sandy, how did it impact you? Now, I know some of you have told the story, we lost our power for maybe an hour. I realize some of you were spared tremendous effects of the storm. But for others of us, it really was a wake-up call. It was a time to really reflect. I'm wondering how many more of us today, even of those of you who were spared maybe your own impact in terms of yourself, but you've seen what it's done to other people and other things around you, are you more grateful for simple blessings? Are you more grateful for loved ones, for freedom, for public servants who risk their lives in the line of duty? For the gift of life? Are you more grateful for the promises of the gospel? Are you more grateful for the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ, who never breaks his promises? Are you more thankful for a triumphant Savior who conquered death, who conquered sin and hell? Have you sensed that God oftentimes, in his wisdom, And in his mysterious providence, he will bring us to our knees through trials and through tragedies so that we may humble ourselves and that we might be given eyes to see those things that are invisible. The things that we don't oftentimes concentrate on and focus on because we're so busy tied up with the things that we are called upon that occupy our our moments of our days. But we oftentimes forget the issues of eternity. We forget the great God who stands above all the tumult of this world. And that God can give us eyes to see the things we've never clearly seen before. Why? Because we realize that we are called as eternal beings to live our life before God. Some of us, we see ourselves as frail, limited in our abilities. And as we see our abilities, oftentimes that we are powerless against the forces of huge storms. And maybe there's other kinds of storms you're dealing with in your life. I'm not talking just about high winds and rain. Talk about the storms that oftentimes knock us down off our feet onto our faces and learning to cry out to God. Have you seen in this past year examples of God's mysterious ways unfolding in your life? That times of tragedy actually are redounding to God's glory? That because of things you've seen as they've unfolded, there are more people today who are thanking God than would have thanked God 
a year ago because God has been at work in his own mysterious way to accomplish his powerful working in the hearts of you or other people around you as we look at ourselves as feeble as those who are frail and failure-prone sinners, that we are people who do not have the great power to live for God, and yet He's met us with His grace again and again and again. And His grace has ministered to us in such a way that we realize more and more how precious are the promises of the gospel, how precious are the, the blessings of the undeserved receive, the blessings we received in Christ and that have been provided to us by an all-sufficient Savior. Can it be that God is saying, Today is the day I want you to be thankful. Tomorrow is the day I want you to be thankful. Every day is a day to be thankful. Well, clearly, I believe it comes to those people. Thankfulness is evident in the heart of somebody who is dwelling and meditating on the gospel of Christ. It needs to be that which we review again and again and again and again. Secondly, I want us to think and consider just briefly here this morning that thanksgiving is the fruit of a spirit-controlled mind or heart. A spirit-controlled mind and heart. Offering thanks to God in all sorts of situations, including times of tragedy and trouble, is not automatic. You must hear me say that. It's not something that just comes out of you because, well, that's just my nature. I tend to whistle when I'm, you know, walking around the house. Or I'm a person that loves to just sing all the time. No. I realize that for many of us, Thanksgiving is something that we have, it's not just coming out of us uh, effortlessly. It's not automatically, it's not natural. It is the fruit of the Spirit of God, His work in your heart and life. It's difficult not to see this connection in this passage I want us to look at very briefly here in Ephesians chapter 5. So would you make your way there to Ephesians 5, just for a second, page number 1393. See if you don't see the connection here between what I'm affirming here, that the Spirit of God must be at work in a person's heart and life in order to see the connection with thanksgiving becoming evident in my own experience and in my expression to God. Ephesians 5, 18. Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, that is, to be under the control of wine. Why? Because that is dissipation. But... Keep on being filled, literally, be filled, keep on being filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for one or two things that might happen that, oh, I'm sorry, but for all things, giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So Paul says, keep on being filled, keep on being under the control of the Holy Spirit, and the evidence of that will be that there will be a a, a giving of thanks that is, is seen in our hearts. Now, keep your finger there and just turn a page or two to the right and page 1402, Colossians 3. I believe these two passages need to be understood together in order to sort of unpack what it means to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. And I believe Paul expresses the same concept with different words in this way, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the word about Christ, is probably a better way to translate that, the word about Christ, 
Let it richly dwell within you. That's not a suggestion, that's a command. So he's saying, I'm telling you, may this, let the word of Christ, the word about Christ, richly dwell within you. Why? With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with what? Thankfulness to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Watch this. Giving thanks through the Lord Jesus to God the Father. Now, do you see the connection here? To live under the control of the Holy Spirit is to have the word about Christ richly dwelling within you. What does that mean? Well, when the gospel about Jesus is at home in your mind, when it's that which you are pondering and thinking about and, and you're rehearsing and you're going over it again and again, you're applying yourself saying, I feel so unworthy, I feel so undeserving, and you go back and say, it's Christ. Christ is the one who's done it all for me. He's the one who's kept the law. I always fail. I'm forgiven because of Christ. Therefore, I'm loved. I am on good terms with God. That we celebrate about the word about Jesus. Our hearts are made aware that we are more sinful than we realized and we're more loved than we ever imagined. My friend, when the Spirit of God is working in you and that is what's going on in your heart and life, is it any wonder that thankfulness is going to be flowing out of you? Do you notice there, back in Ephesians 5, it's interesting that the Holy Spirit is able to produce the fruit of thanksgiving, he says, in every situation. I find it interesting. When I'm not feeling particularly thankful for anything, I say to myself, yeah, well, I've got 16 things that are not happening that I wish were happening. I oftentimes give an excuse because of the things around me as I indicate there's no reason to be giving thanks now. According to this text, when the Spirit of God is working in my heart and the gospel is that which I'm meditating on and thinking about the word about Christ, the more I'm under control of that, the more likely I will see the evidence of thankfulness come out of my heart. Not something I'm manufacturing. It's something that's the fruit of the Spirit applying those things to our heart. Rather than standing outside the gates of God's royal palace, holding your protest sign, or complaining against God's providential plans for your life. Let's listen to the, the Spirit's promptings through the psalmist and say, you know, I need to enter God's gates with thanksgiving. I need to enter His courts with praise and be thankful unto Him. Why? Psalm 100, verse 5. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. His loving kindness doesn't just last for yesterday. His loving kindness, which means His covenant-keeping faithfulness, in the midst of our failings, he keeps his end of the bargain. That is, I'm going to deal with you in grace. His loving kindness is everlasting. It doesn't stop tomorrow. And his faithfulness to all generations. You say, well, I don't know. I'm not with you. I'm just not with you. It says, I, I've fallen to a time in my life where I'm sort of despairing. And I realize there's some of you may be that way. You would have to admit that if you look around you, all you see is darkness. Everything, all colors are muted. You have a hard time seeing the goodness of God. You have a hard time seeing and understanding the loving kindness of God and being everlasting and His faithfulness. May I just speak to you just for a moment? Honestly speaking, I know that you can say, be honest and say, it's true that the word about Christ is not at home in your heart and life then I would like to make a strong suggestion to you how do you get from where you are to where God would want you to be. 
I don't want you to make it up in your mind and say, okay, I'll just imagine I'm, I'm there and I'm just going to say words I don't really mean. I'm not asking you to do that. I want to direct your mind backwards. I want to suggest to you, as I came across an article I thought was very helpful recently, which one author said, going backward is one of the best ways to go forward. What does that mean? What that means is that if you direct your mind back toward the memory bank of recalling days in which you could say, yes, I was singing songs of thankfulness and praise to God. There's a time in my life where God met me. There's a time in my life where I experienced the grace of God. I'm so clear and I'm so aware of it. I can still recall it. I want to urge you to step backward and go back to that time in your life. And think about that moment when you, when you saw the light of the grace of Jesus Christ shining so clearly into your heart and life. And I want you to follow that through the years. To realize that God met you there. My friend, God is meeting you right here. And as you walk back from where you've been to where you are now, Recall the fact that God's grace accompanies you to where you are now. Sometime in the future, as you think about the future, maybe you're thinking about the present, and all you're saying is it's just full of dread. It's full of drudgery. It's full of just things that only you can see are negative. My friend, let me encourage you to look at the outlines of God's goodness. They may be difficult for you to grasp, but my friend, hold on to the ones you know were true, Locate God in your memory and let those memories bring you into greater thankfulness where you are today. Here's an example. Psalm 105. Psalm 105. We read Psalm 107 earlier. We read Psalm 106. There's another one just like this. Psalm 105, 104. They're all interesting. Page 729. Listen to these few verses here. Stay with me at the end here. The psalmist says this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name. You say, well, I don't feel like doing that. Okay, well, stay with me here. The psalmist gives a reason why. He says, make known God's deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him, sing praises to Him. Speak of all His wonders, glory in His holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. You say, well, I'm not there. All right, here's the remedy. Seek the Lord and His strength. You need to get your mind off yourself. You need to get your mind back onto the Lord. Seek His strength. And seek His face continually. Don't give up. And watch this. Remember His wonders which He has done. In other words, go back to the time where you know you've seen His hand at work and don't forget it. Hold that on. And as you hold on to that memory, then bring forward the fact that God has led you to where you are today and let God begin to soften your heart and help your mind begin to say, I've got to get my mind back on the fact that God is God. He is faithful. He is good. Despite all the struggles and difficulties I face. And my friend, that will only happen as we what? Preach the gospel to ourselves. Remind ourselves of our brokenness in Christ, uh, apart from Christ and Christ's love and His compassion for us on the cross and resurrection. Real quickly, I don't have time to go into this detail, but I would like to also suggest as a follow-up thing to do at home later on is to get your Bible out to a book that I'm sure your Bible just opens to easily is the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, chapter 1. Interesting how this process works out because the author of Habakkuk himself, he starts off the book and he says this. He's clearly not in a good place. 
he's not in a very thankful frame of mind. And he says this, he starts off, and maybe this is what you're saying, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. Now that's a tough place to be. If you think God is far away and he's not listening to you anymore, and you're crying out to God, that's the way he starts the book. He thinks that God should be doing something that he isn't doing, and he's frustrated and he's annoyed with it, and he's crying out saying, where are you, God? He goes on to say, and God's, God's response to him, by the way, verse 5, is to say this, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days that you will not believe if you were told it. I wish you could hear God say that in your life today. God's going to do something in your life. You can't even imagine, you don't even know, you can't fully fathom what God is doing in the world. You don't get half of it. And God says, even if I tell you, you're still not going to believe it. Because why? Because your blinders are so narrow. You can't see it. Real quickly, I could preach a whole other sermon on this one text. All right, chapter 2, verse 1. Here's Habakkuk. He says, listen, I'm going to stand right here on the, the place where the lookout man stands on the, on the rampart here, the guard post. I'm going to station myself right here, and I'm going to look out there, and I'm going to say, okay, God, what are you going to do? I'm looking. And God has to bring him through a long process by which I think he was alone for a while there. He was by himself, had some time to think, had some time to God finally get into him and to try to change his mind. And at the end of the book is this awesome affirmation, which I would strongly urge you to read and reread and say to yourself, can you say this to the point where the Spirit's working in your heart and the gospel has so warmed and softened your heart and your mind toward God and to what he says this. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit in the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, the fields produce no food, and though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there's no cattle in the stalls. You say, what does that mean? It means total economic disaster. If you live in an agricultural town, you have nothing, you have no assets, you have, you, there's no income coming in, it's a complete economic meltdown. He says, the worst case scenario... He says, if that were to happen, verse 18, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on the high places. Talking about the goats or the sheep who could walk on the high precipice on a mountain with very small crags to hang on to, and their little feet can navigate that. He says, I can navigate through the worst of situations. Why? Because God is the one I'm trusting in. It is God who is my strength. It is God who's helping me in the midst of the worst disaster possible. His heart has been turned back to God. And that is my prayer for us today, Lord, that the Lord himself would draw us to himself and therefore make us thankful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to say, first of all, that we don't want any kind of fake and phony thankfulness. We don't want to just say words to you, Lord, that don't mean anything. We just say them because we think we should. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be honest and real. And wherever we are today, if we're crying out, saying, where are you, O Lord? Why don't you hear my cry? May that be our prayer. But, Lord, may it not be the final prayer. May it be a cry that says, Lord, I want to know 
hope. I want to know joy. I want to know peace through Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to get our minds, our thoughts, our hearts focused on Christ, His compassion for sinners like us, His faithfulness in keeping the law, His love in laying down His life, taking upon Himself our sin, His power that rose from the dead, breaking the bonds of sin and the curse of sin. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts today, awaken in our minds many reasons to be thankful because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that your spirit, oh, how I pray your spirit would work in all the lives of people who are here today, Lord. Soften us, I pray. Give us, we pray, a tenderness toward you, humility, humbling ourselves before you, Lord, learning to consider what we deserve versus what we've received from your hand of blessing and grace. And I pray, O oh Lord, your spirit would have us, once again, have minds that are filled with the word about Christ and that we would truly be thankful. Lord, I pray that even through this week, there might be an ever-increasing circle of thankfulness because the Spirit of God is working in us. That those of us who are in a hard place, we're in a difficult time, Lord, that we might be giving thanks in such a way that people begin to sense there's something going on here. There's more reasons to be thankful than just what happens in our lives. And so, Lord, whether it's us learning to give our finances away, whether it's learning to get involved in other people's lives to the point where our life becomes more difficult and, diff- and challenging, but the gospel is moving forward. Lord, may there be an ever-increasing number of people being thankful before you to the glory of your name, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.